for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Thank you, Richard. Well, it's good to be here amongst you. I've been to various things at Ashford over the years, but I think this is the first time I've spoken here. And uh, get rid of that. Um, so it's great to be here. I bring with me the uh, greetings of the church at Maidstone at the Vine. Um, we're, like you, going through all kinds of things with people coming and going, um, but we are very pleased to know that we're in fellowship with you here at Ashford. Um, just a bit about myself, I suppose, that is what we're supposed to do at these occasions, isn't it, really? Um, as you heard, my name's Tony, and uh, I've been uh, in leadership in the church in Maidstone for probably 50 years now, um, so I'm one of those people that kind of sticks at the same thing in the same place, uh, you might think, but during that time I've seen... Uh, uh, Twice seen two churches combine, um, and uh, the wonderful story, which I don't know whether any of you know at Maidstone, is that uh, a church was planted in 1889, I think it was, uh, with a gift from C.H. Spurgeon, um, and that church grew slowly in a little chapel just outside of Maidstone, and out of that has come two other churches, and as a result of all these mergers, we're all back together. So we have a church now, the Vine, which shares the same heritage, uh, that of being planted by C.H. Spurgeon. That's an, always an inspiration to those of us that speak at the church, as you can imagine. And in fact, our meeting hall is called Spurgeon. Um, and so that's what we seek to do. And whenever I go anywhere, if I'm, even if I'm at home and I'm speaking, I always feel that kind of awesome presence uh, and imp- of God being in the place and wanting to speak to people. And uh, my desire this morning is that he will speak with you. Um, Iris and I have just come back from uh, Canada visiting one of our grandsons who's been studying there in Vancouver. And uh, before I went, um, the uh, Church of England vicar, who is her church is just along the road from one of our buildings, uh, had lunch with her and she said to me, Vancouver, you must go to Regent College. I trained there. So I said, oh, right, I'll go to Regent College. Those older ones of you may remember that, you know, when we had the kind of New Bible Dictionary or whatever it was called, many of the people that contributed to that, I remember reading Regent College. I didn't know anything about it. And so we decided that while we were in Vancouver, we'd go there. And we went to see the building, and it wasn't particularly impressive, and we wandered around downstairs, and it was all right. You know, it had a bookshop, and it had a cafe, and there was a worship area, and upstairs there was various things going on. Uh, and as we walked up the stairs, looking around this building, um, we, we saw this sculpture on the wall. And uh, my grandson, who is an artist and uh, really into kind of artistic stuff, said, oh, I don't like that. And uh, then he and Iris went off to look at something else. And, and I stood looking at this. It was pure, I think it was probably white marble, I don't know. But it was uh, uh, an, an, an image of a, a man. Uh, and everything was white. And the man was like this. And he was kind of in a pulpit that had a cross on the front of it. Um, and his feet were sticking out the bottom. And uh, he had seemed to have huge feet. In fact, one comment that I looked at afterwards said that they were probably size 12 wide fit. He had huge feet and he was just stood there. But he had this kind of bowed head like this. And I looked at this. This is very strange. And just next to it was a, a little 
notice that talked about who this person was. And uh, it's talked about the, the sculptor and how he had made this because he wanted to remind everybody that trained at Regent College that their responsibility in proclaiming the word of God was that they were there to represent Jesus. And so there was this figure behind the cross, hands out, head there. And uh, at the end of the description, it reminded us of that, that verse in Isaiah that says, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. And uh, I think that's why I went to Regent College. I can't think of anything else that I remember about it. Um, but the, since I came back, which was a couple of weeks ago now, I spoke at the Vine last Sunday. I'm speaking here this morning. I have that sense of whenever I stand before people, God, I'm here. Please speak through me. And... Uh, that is, of course, what every one of us that preaches the word of God should be doing. But sometimes we get taken up with the theology, with all sorts of other stuff, and we forget that actually when we stand before our friends, our brothers and sisters, that we're looking for God to speak. And so that's my prayer this morning, that for everything that I say, that in it, each one of you will hear God speak. And I've been doing this for long enough to know that probably what will happen after you've gone home and you're having your lunch... There's only probably only one thing you'll remember that I've said, if that. But my belief and understanding is that the Holy Spirit works as we speak God's word. And it's not so much about us remembering every single word that was said, it's about us hearing what God wanted to say to us today. And so that's my prayer for you. I understand you've been going through Acts and you've been looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the early church. Is that right? Oh, good, I got that bit right. That's good. Um, and today, we've come to the story of Stephen, uh, which is we find in chapter 6 and 7 of Acts. Um, Stephen's an interesting person because he comes into the picture in chapter 6. He dis- he f- his life ends at the end of chapter 7, and we don't know very much more about him at all. Um, and I'm not going to read all of this to you because there's quite a lot, really, and... Uh, Some of you will be asleep, I think, by the time we've read two whole chapters. Um, But what I want to say first of all is that as I've been looking at this in preparation to come and see you this morning, I've been impressed with the fact that here is a man who clearly lived his life well. Here is a man who finished really well. And uh, the whole tenor of what I I believe God wants us to consider this morning is where are we in our journey of life as we move towards that glorious day when we go to be with Jesus? Where are we in that journey in terms of finishing strong? And I believe this story helps us to really focus on that and, and bring some really challenging thoughts for each one of us. Where are we? You know, it's very easy in some ways to make a response to the gospel message when the Holy Spirit touches us. It's much more challenging to continue walking with God through the years. And uh, I I can say that having, dare I say, (laughs) um, having been walking with Jesus probably for 60 years now, um, it's just an ongoing challenge to us, isn't it? To keep going, to keep our focus on him, to keep moving with him. And Stephen is clearly a man who was recognised as somebody who was filled with God's spirit, as we'll see, and, but also a man who finished probably more strongly than anybody could, uh, as we'll see if you don't know this story. But in, in Acts chapter 6, 
uh, we have this story of the situation of some of the Christians that were there, some of the people that in this great gathering of those who are being saved in these early days and the work Holy Spirit convicting people, some of the people there were, were getting missed out in the, in the distribution of food. And so they came to the, the apostles and they said, we need to do something about this. And the apostles did a bit of delegation. And uh, they said to the, to the church, well, you select some people who can do this task uh, for you. And uh, they say, they give a kind of job specification in verse 3. Uh, and he, he, they say, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them. And then in verse 5, this proposal, they, they chose seven people, it says, this proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also the, the other six they named. But I just want to just stay for a moment there. They, he, they, the, the apostles said we want people of good repute, we want people who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And this man, Stephen, was chosen because he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, for me, that just underlines for us the truth that here in church, when we appoint and call people, not just to be elders, but to be those who serve us, we need the same spirit, don't we? You see, it's all of us need to be filled with that same spirit who's energising and directing us as we serve him. And so that is the qualification. It's very interesting if you look later in the New Testament and you look at the qualifications for elders and deacons, they're very, very similar. Because if we're going to serve God in whatever capacity, whether it's up front, whether it's in leadership, or whether it's just serving, not being seen, and that's, of course, what this man Stephen was chosen to do. This was serving at tables. All of us need to be those who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. We'll come back to that and look at that a bit later as we close. So they chose this man, Stephen, and that was the qualifications. And uh, this man, Stephen, wasn't satisfied simply with serving at tables. He has much more to this man. And now, and so if we go on to verse 8 of chapter 6, we read this. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Here was a man who knew the power of God upon him. And, and it goes on to say that people were very upset about this. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Full of grace and power. Doing great signs and wonders for God. And and what a great encouragement this is to us. I don't know about you, but how often do we find ourselves seeking to defend the gospel? If we ask God's spirit to enable us to do that, we can do that in a more powerful way than we can ever imagine. It says, opponents couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Have you had that experience? God has given you a word to speak into a situation, into the conversation you're having with somebody, and suddenly you can see that it has made a difference. I love that. 
of having conversations, having debates, and helping people, and just, you say something, and you know it's from God. And there it is, straight away, touching that person. And these, these clever people who were very cross with Stephen and the things that he was doing, they could not withstand the wisdom that was there. And because of this, Stephen is brought before the council. He's taken and to give an account of himself. In verse 12 of chapter 6, we read this. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They pro- produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. But we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw his face. It was like the face of an angel. Are you starting to get excited about this guy? And so as I read through this again, I think, what a man. What blessing from God. And so he's brought before the council and they bring all their false witnesses and so on. And they saw his face. It was like an angel as he stood before them. We, we do know that, don't we? Sometimes we, we talk with somebody, we, perhaps we've been counselled by somebody, and, and suddenly, perhaps we don't see their face change, but it's just like they are the person that God has given to speak to us. We, we, we do understand that. And you know, it's interesting, there's a, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says this, it says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Wherever I go amongst Christians, I just love the fact that I can look around a room like this and I'll see people smiling at me. You see, when we're free, when we've been saved, when we know that power of God that's come upon us, when we know that we're forgiven, there's a lightness that comes to us. And several times this morning already in the meeting, there have been kind of hints of people that are in situations that are in difficulty or that the enemy might be having a go at us. Friends, we need to be those that concentrate our eyes on Jesus, as we'll see in a minute as we look later in this story. That's what Stephen did, right to the very end. And if we keep our eyes fixed on him, then we can handle all these other things. That's not to say they're not terribly difficult. We at the Vine at the moment seem to be going through a a series of people in the congregation dying. It's very sad. One man just died a couple, three weeks ago, so suddenly, just like that. Strong man, local counsellor, wonderful singer. We all knew that he was in our congregation when we were worshipping. We could hear his voice above everything else. And just within 36 hours, this vigorous man who'd been part of our school's team, rolling about on the floor with boys and so on, even though he was in his 70s, his life was ended. Great sadness in the church. But we keep our eyes on Jesus. Last week we celebrated the fact that we know where he is. And I think it was 25 members of Mason Borough Council came to the funeral. And the mayor. And three previous mayors. It was great that they came and heard the gospel. You see, we need to constantly be looking to Jesus. He is the one who can change how we feel. Whether it's looking out of the kitchen window and seeing a sparrow. I could really relate to that. We've got sparrows that have taken over our garden, really. And they sit in a bush at one side of the garden and we call it their chat room. Because they chatter away all day long. 
Uh, but it's great to see them. But that reminder this morning that God looks down on us. It's great. Very good. So they bring Stephen before them. And uh, the high priest asks him about these charges. And then he replies. And uh, I think this is probably one of the longest sermons that's recorded in the word. It goes on for a long way, up into the 50s in terms of verses. And Stephen stands and he gives to these people a very quick history of their nation and a very clear underlining of what has gone wrong down through the years. He begins with the the man Abraham and he takes them right through their history to Solomon and then he sums the rest of the history up in a couple of verses. And then he says to them, always we as the people of God have been a stiff-necked people. That's where that phrase comes from, by the way. A stiff-necked people who've killed the prophets and not listened to what God's wanted us to do. And during his main sermon there, you'll see that he reminds them of the time when Moses went up into the mountain to be with God and how his brother made this image and they began doing all sorts of stuff. How often when they were in the wilderness, they cried out and said, we want to go back to Egypt. How many, many times they turned away. We read the book of Kings and Chronicles and we see time and time again, this king followed the way of God. This king did not follow the way of God. This king embraced the religions of other surrounding groups. And so Stephen brings all this together. And he says, we've been a stiff-necked people, killing the prophets. And then you betrayed and murdered Jesus, the Messiah, who was sent. He he doesn't hold anything back. He's really going for it now. And you didn't keep the law, he said. These are the people who are guardians of the law. And he said, we haven't kept the law. Our behaviour has been atrocious. Well, you can almost guess what happens then, can't you? (laughs) Those of you who know the story know it very well. And uh, I'll pick it up again in verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Remember what I said a minute or two ago? You see, here he is. He's about to be taken. He knows he's in danger. What does he see? He sees Jesus standing in heaven. What a challenge that is to us. He sees him. And at this, they cover their ears. They can't handle any more. They are so angry. Yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. Dragged him out of the city. And began to stone him. One place it says, they gnashed their teeth. <laughs> yeah? We do it sometimes, don't we? When we just don't know what else to do. because. And these men were so angry with him. They took him out of the city and stoned him. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Right to the very end, 
Stephen's focus was on Jesus. The whole of that sermon that he preached and the history lesson, the, 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 the kind of uh, re- recovering, re-go- going back through the history of the Jews, through all of that, his eyes were on Jesus. His eyes were on Jesus. And you know, that I think that's why he could say those, those last words that are recorded there, because they so reflect the words of Jesus, don't they? On the cross. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. I think he could say that because he could see Jesus. He had seen him. He'd had this vision just before they took him out. And so he knew. He was connected with Jesus. He knew it was true. One, one uh, commentator on this passage says, he says, uh, just in the, in the early bit, before they take him away, he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. One, translator, one commentator says, why is Jesus standing? Because he's completely involved in what's happening here. He's no longer sitting on the throne. He's standing up. What's happening? I've got my eye on Stephen, my servant. And I'm going to be with him right through to the end. You know, that is the promise for you and me as well when we go through difficult and dark times. He's there. He's there for us. If we'll connect with him, if we'll believe this, if we'll really give ourselves to him. And so I said earlier this morning that as I've read this and what I believe the word God wants me to bring to you this morning, is to ask this question. How will you finish your life? Some of you may feel that you've made a mess of it. Some of you may feel that it used to be alright, but now I'm not doing so well. Some of you may even not have started a walk with Jesus yet. But the question is there for all of us. How will I finish my life? Will I finish my life in frustration, in sadness, in pain, Will I end my life with regrets? Do you know, as I grow older, I find more and more of my thoughts are kind of reflecting back on what's happened in the past in my life. And it's not necessarily bad stuff at all, but I'm just aware that as we get older, we somehow want to connect back with our roots. So sometimes I stand in front of the mirror in the morning shaving and suddenly I, I, I remember my father shaving when I was a small child. You know, and that's what happens. And so often as we look back, don't let's look back and say... I regret doing that, I regret doing that. If we've confessed it to God, he's forgiven us. We don't need to go there. And as we move forward, we want to be people that are walking every minute with him. And that's really difficult, isn't it? And so, I, I, as this morning, I want to give you some hints and ideas as to how, how that happens, just as we look at this story of Stephen. But having said what I've said, uh, I just want to share something with you, because for me, this was a big wake-up call when I read this. Uh, A man called Robert Clinton, who is at the Fuller Institute in the States, has made a lifelong uh, study of people and how successful they are. And part of that, he's identified apparently a thousand people who had leadership responsibility in the Bible. And uh, of those, he's seen that there are about a hundred who you can say are really prominent leaders. And as he worked more and more, he was wanting to see how did they finish, how did their lives end, 
um, he decided that there was enough evidence for 49 of these 100 significant leaders to be able to answer that question. How did they end their life? And he says that as he studied it, he said there were, there were four different ways that people finished their lives. The first one was they were cut off. Apparently, much too early. Secondly, there were those who finished really poorly. Thirdly, there were those who finished so-so. And then were those who finished well. And he gives examples. Those who were cut off. He talks of Samson, of John the Baptist, people whose lives were just cut off. Those who finished poorly. Sad story. Gideon, who we so admire for what he did and what he allowed God to do through him. If you read the end of his story, it's not very good. It's pretty bad, really. King Saul, the first king of Israel, with great hope he comes to the throne. The people have been asking for a king. He's God's chosen one. Samuel goes and anoints him, and he's made king. But his life ends in a terrible mess. With him even going to kind of call up spirits and do all kinds of stuff. And even King David, King Hezekiah, ones who we listen to and we're excited about how they live their lives, there were aspects of their lives that weren't too good. And then there are those who finish well. Caleb when he's, what is it, 80 years old, says, this was promised to me when I, all those years ago when I was one of the spies that went to look at the promised land and find out about it. And I was one of two, along with Joshua, who said, it's wonderful, we need to take it now. But because of the other ten that went with them, who all said, it's terrible, it's full of giants, it's terrible, we can't possibly take it, they never went. And God said, all of you will die before the land is now given, except for Joshua and for Caleb. Joshua, of course, led them in to take the promised land once that generation had died. But it's Caleb on his 80th birthday who reminds the people, and he says, give me, in in as many words, he says, give me this mountain. Yeah, At that age, he's still believing in the promises that God has given him, even though he hasn't got them yet, but he's believing in them right to the very end. Stephen... Is another one, isn't he? Oh, gee, I can't think of any better way of ending your life. I don't, I don't know that I want to be stoned, but fancy ending your life when you're preaching and, and bringing conviction to people and seeing Jesus in front of you. What a great way to finish your life. I don't, th- don't know that it's happened to many people, but that's a great way that he finished his life, isn't he? The Apostle John, who lived to a very old age, you remember, sent to that island... But there he had that incredible vision that we call revelation. So what does that say to us? Where do you want to be? Do you want to be someone whose life is cut off because you make such a mess of it, God can't, just can't allow you to do any more and he ends your life? Are you going to be someone who doesn't finish very well, used to do really well, used to do this, used to do that? Or is it just so-so? Well, it's been about the same for many years. Or is there something in you that wants to finish well? Who's inspired by this man, Stephen? 
That's the place I'm in. I want to be inspired by this man. I really do. And uh, Robert Clinton says in his research, he says the real issue when you analyse it all down, he says, why did they do well? They didn't do well, listen to this, because they didn't survive the ambushes. They didn't survive the ambushes. And, you know, the enemy, we talked, mentioned him this morning, we don't give him much space because he's, he's a, a defeated foe, but he, he's still at it, ambushing us. You know, whether it's the big and obvious things of money and sex and power, or whether it's very, very small things, he still wants to ambush us. He's still there trying to reduce our effectiveness, to undermine our belief, to cause us to ask questions which there are no answers to except in God. That's the kind of thing that we live with as, as men and women of God. We have an enemy who is constantly seeking to ambush us. So how can we avoid ambushes? You see, it's wonderful, isn't it, to be really kind of excited about Stephen and think, oh, I'd love to be like that. I'd love to have a vision like that. I'd love to die like that. I'd love to be able to preach like that. I'd love to be able to serve people because I was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It's great to be like that. But how can we avoid these ambushes? Paul says in Ephesians 5, doesn't he, that we need to be those who are, being, who are filled with the Spirit. That we all know, you know. One of the first things we hear when we hear teaching about the Holy Spirit is that we need to keep on being filled. This isn't a once and for all thing. It's a constant thing. Uh, I think it was D.L. Moody who said, the problem is we leak. Yeah, we, we get filled with the Spirit. We're high, we do really well. But as the days go by, if we're not careful, it, it disappears. We need to be constantly being filled. Keep on being, being filled with the Spirit. It, that's what Paul's saying to the Ephesians in chapter 5. So that's the place that we need to start. Because using Stephen as our example, as our pattern, he had wisdom. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a man of faith. He had a good repute. He, he'd served at tables. He'd done all these things. And he was full of the Spirit. Time and time again, here. Not only when he's appointed to be a servant at tables, but elsewhere it says the Holy Spirit was on him. We need, don't let's undermine that. Don't let's feel, well, I've been filled with the Spirit, so that's okay. Let's ask God, say, God, continue to fill me with your Spirit for what I need today. That's got to be the first place if we're going to defend ourselves from these ambushes. Because if we have, if we are filled with the Spirit, we can hear his voice. And he can warn us. He can give us strategies to deal with situations that come. Because this isn't all about a debate, is it? It's about happenings. When suddenly our child is desperately ill. When suddenly we contract some disease. When suddenly someone who we've loved for years suddenly turns against us. Ambushes come in so many different guises. It's not just about a debate. We're in a situation. And we need to cry out to God. As you know, the great thing for me about church is we've got lots of friends who will stand with us, who will be there for us, who will come and visit us 
One of my very good friends, I was best man at his wedding, today is having a major operation. Ah, just before we got out of the car, just now, Iris and I were praying for him. Say, Lord, be with him. He knows that we're with him. We saw him last Saturday. We root him for him. A great thing, isn't it, about men and women of God, that we can be there to support one another. Because we're all in this together. So, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be living in relationship with God. We need not only to be there for one another, but to hold one another to account. We don't like that. But actually, it's so important, isn't it? I've got people, friends in my life, who from time to time challenge what I say and what I do. And I'm so grateful for them. It's one of the things I love about... Uh, our eldership at uh, the Vine is there are people there once a month uh, the, our two full time elders and I'm pretty well full time although I'm not on the payroll um, we meet and the specific purpose is for us to challenge one another about our behaviours and how we're going how we're dealing with our families and so on it's such a precious time to know there are people who will speak into my life who will say you need to do something about that how are you getting on with this Are you having problems with that? We need to do that because that will help us to avoid the ambushes. And the the third thing, so be filled with the Holy Spirit is the first. Live in relationship with people who can really speak into your life and encourage you. Be part of the church. And the third thing is have a clear vision. A clear vision. And for me, the vision is that I might leave a legacy. I want my life to be such that I plant in my family things that will enable them to move forward. My vision is that my three children will, will go through life standing on my and Iris's shoulders. They won't have to start where we did with many things that we regret, but they've grown up in a Christian household and that they might be able to stand on our shoulders and that our 11 grandchildren will be able to stand on their parents' grandchildren and start even further forward. That's the legacy that I'm longing for. That's what I'm in some ways living my life for. And you might say, well, that's interesting. How did you get hold of that? Well, I'll tell you how I got hold of it. About 20 years ago, I read this. And this became an inspiration for me. Leaving a godly legacy for your children should be the goal of all Christian parenting. Say It says Christian parenting. So those of you that don't have children, this includes you because in the church there are children, there are young people, there are others that we can parent, we can be uh, uh, parents for. So leaving a godly legacy for your children should be the goal of all Christian parenting. Although the faith and godliness of your children is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit... God often uses the influence of parents to make a great impact on their children. That caught my attention because I think in the church so often, you know, we have children and they don't all follow God. And it's such a pain to us, and it should be, but there's a sense in many cases where we take full responsibility for that. Say, there was something wrong with my bringing up of this child because they're not walking with God. But do you see? You see, they get to a point where they make their own choices and they're responsible for their choices and we as parents aren't. So, 
Although the faith and godliness of your children is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit, God often uses the influence of parents to make a great impact on their children. A great example of this is Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher from the 1700s. Jonathan and his wife Sarah left a great godly legacy for his 11 children. Not many of us got 11 children, I guess, but uh, nevertheless. At the turn of the 20th century, American educator and pastor E.A. Winslip decided to trace out the descendants of Jonathan Edwards almost 150 years after his death. His findings are astonishing, especially when compared to a man known as Max Jukes. Jukes' legacy came to the forefront when the family trees of 42 different men in the New York prison system were traced back to him. Jonathan Edwards' godly legacy includes one vice president of the USA, three US senators, three governors three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers and 100 missionaries. That really caught my imagination. I thought, this is wonderful. And just to let you know the other side, Max Duke's descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 50 women of debauchery, 130 other convicts, 310 paupers with over 2,300 years lived in poorhouses between them, 400 of whom were physically wrecked by indulgent, indulgent living. And I thought, God, I don't want this for me. I want my children and my children's children and my children's children's children to have an opportunity to walk with you. What is the secret? What is the secret? And you know, I found it in the Ten Commandments. We all know, I think, at least it's a, a long and commonly recited thing, that God visits the sins of the children on the third and fourth generation. Have you all heard that? Yeah? Let me read that whole verse to you. This is the Ten Commandments. You must not worship or serve an idol, because I, the Lord, am a jealous God. If you hate me, I will punish your children and even your grandchildren, great-grandchildren. That's the translation of the verse. But, this is a bit people often don't read, but I will show kindness to thousands who love me and obey my commands. And so you see, the generations that come from me and from Iris... Their lives can be affected by whether I keep faith with God. And you see what an impact this has in terms of finishing well. When our kids kick over the traces, they do stuff that absolutely abhors us, we need to hold faith. Say, God, I love you, I'm continuing to serve you, I'm not going to doubt you, I do believe that because I am yours and you are making me holy day by day, you're going to continue to bless these children. And you know, sometimes when I'm thinking about this, and I'm, I, I find myself asking questions. I come back to this, that I these days can stand in front of a group of people like you and talk with absolute confidence, and that when I was 15... Um, I wouldn't actually even read a Bible verse in a Bible study. And God has done that in my life. And he's done things in your lives as well that mean you're not the people that you once were. They're character things. They're not just behaviours, they're character things. Because more and more the character of God is being 
made in you. It's being formed in you. And so, that means that God will bless our families. And we can be part of that. And as I said earlier, whether you are somebody who's got children of your own or whether you haven't, there are those that you can be a Christian parent to. And at the same time, you can be a blessing to them. And so, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you this morning to be those who have got a legacy. might not be the same legacy as mine, but I want to encourage you to have a legacy. So, in conclusion, we've looked at Stephen, a man who left a great legacy. His sermon is printed in the word of God. Not many people achieve that. His legacy, as you will read if you go on into uh, chapter 8, is that the church immediately after that is scattered and persecuted. And you might think, well, that's not much of a legacy. But you know, out of that came the spread of the gospel through the then known world. Because the Christians had to decamp. They had to move out. They couldn't stay in that place anymore, many of them. They had to move out. And wherever they went, they took the story of Jesus. They took the fact that people could be forgiven. They prayed for people and they saw them filled with the Spirit. They saw them converted. They saw them healed. And so that is part of the heritage, if you like, the legacy that comes from this man whose story we've been talking about this morning. And can I just say, it's never too late to start this. You can start it today. You can start it here in this room right now and say, God, from now on, I'm making a covenant with you that I'm going to live with you and for you and I'm expecting that you will be true to your promises and you will bless my children and my children's children because that's what your word says. And you know, God loves it when we find something in his word and we say, Lord, you said this, therefore. So I would encourage you to do that and seek his wisdom. uh, When uh, Graham phoned me and asked me if I would speak... It was about three days before we went to Canada. I didn't have lots of time to think about it until I came back. But one thing that happened during that, the couple of days after he asked me was, I'm, I was, I'm reading through the word, and I'm in Proverbs at the moment, um, and I just got to Proverbs chapter 3. And I, I want to just finish by reading that to you, and then to pray for you. It says, My child, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in mind. Then you will live a long time, and your life will be successful. Don't ever forget kindness and truth. Wear them like a necklace. Write them on your heart as if on a tablet. And then you will be respected and will please both God and people. I love Proverbs. There's some amazing things there. Good place to to study if you want to look at your behaviours and so on. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one and only Son of God. That you are the living Word. That you are the Saviour of the world, the Messiah. That you are the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Master of all things. The one who spoke and the world came into being. The one who has promised to come again in glory. The one who has died for us on the cross. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done for us. We worship you.
Lord, we pray that our thoughts, this day and in the days to come, may be more and more focused on you. Lord, that we might be those who embrace wisdom and holiness, grace and love and all the many things that you give us. Spirit of Jesus, come upon us and you. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the great remembrancer. And we pray that you will bear witness to us for whatever you've said to us today. Jesus, I ask you, for every one of us here this morning, if you've said something to us and we've made an inner vow, an inner determination, an inner decision to change things, to do something different, to live differently, Holy Spirit, would you hold us to account? Would you remind us that we have made these promises, that we've been here today and heard you speak to us? And Lord, I pray for everybody in this room, I pray that each and every one of us might finish strong. Might finish strong. Steve Farrer, a man who wrote a book called Finishing Strong, says this, he says, to finish strong means that you are leaving your children and your grandchildren the priceless heritage of a godly life. Father, would you build that in every one of us. The priceless heritage of a godly life. We bless you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are everything to us. Thank you for all that you've said to us today. We worship you. Blessed is your name. Amen.